So, so my goal uh, this Christmas morning is to focus on one aspect of Christ's or God's incarnation. And we know incarnation um, uh, means to take on flesh, take on human flesh. Uh, John 1.14 tells us the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Even the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so earlier in John, we're introduced to the word uh, at the very beginning of John. In fact, um, in the beginning was the word. And so the word was made flesh. God was made flesh um, in his son, Jesus Christ. And So the incarnation was accomplished in God coming to this world in the form of a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And um, specifically what I want to focus on this morning is the aspect of the incarnation that we would call that of condescension, condescension. And so what does it mean to condescend? Well, it means something different back um, uh, when we think of uh, the word in the older English than we do today. Um, in fact, this is one of those words that condescend is almost the opposite today as it was um, in, I'm going to read out of the 1828 dictionary here. Condescend, to descend from the privileges of superior rank or dignity, to do some act to an inferior, which strict justice or the ordinary, ordinary rules of civility do not require. Hence, to submit or yield as to an inferior, implying an occasional relinquishment of distinction. And so about condescension, so to to, to kind of go low, essentially, um, I want to look at two aspects. It's two main goals today in this. First, I want to take a look, maybe a fresh look at, at the condescension of God in the incarnation and specifically focusing on um, what degree of, of condescension is involved in the birth of Jesus Christ? How, what is, how, do, how low did God stoop? What, what was that change? And the second thing I want to do is step into the shoes of man and, have a, a, and ask an eternally important question for us. And that is, how willing are we to condescend ourselves? And so we'll begin with Christ's great height. And I'm going to, this is not a, um, we'll come, we're going to be in, a, in Philippians some today, but we're going to go to a couple places in scripture to see these things. This isn't, we normally go, uh, what we would call consecutive expository preaching, where we go verse by verse, book by book, but today we're not doing that. So we're going to be in a few spots today. Um, <clears throat> so the first place we're going to go, since we're from beginning in Philippians here, is through the book of Isaiah. Um, in chapter 6, which is page uh, 989 in uh, the Pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 6. And so he's an Old Testament prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 6, this Old Testament prophet has a tremendous vision. Um, And it's of something very glorious and very wonderful. And I'm going to read um, Isaiah chapter 6 in the first three verses. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah, or, yeah, in the year that the King Uzziah died, I—that's um, Isaiah—saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims; each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you say, okay, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, it says. And we see these, these, these grand terms of his these high and lifted up. We're going to get to these terms in a bit. Um, as the seraphim around him, they're crying unto him that, that he is holy, 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 the thrice holy Lord. Um, the whole earth is full of his glory, they proclaim. And so this is an amazing um, uh, vision for uh, Isaiah. Um, we'll get back to it, but, it, but his response in verse 5 is he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He's like, I can't even, I, I shouldn't be here. This is too glorious, too wonderful, too amazing for me to behold. But who is he looking at? Who is he looking at? It says the Lord. To see who he's looking at, we're going to turn to John chapter 12, and that is page 1509 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 12 and verse 37. And we will not be bouncing around in the scriptures the whole time, but a little bit here at the beginning. So John chapter 12, beginning at verse 37 we see Christ um, not being responded to in a, in a way that we would like. He says, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So Christ, God in the flesh, is his ministry is not making, not producing converts. They're not believing on him. And it says that the saying of Isaiah, which is Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. And so I did not read all of those things, but those are also in Isaiah chapter 6, those, those, this idea of hardening of hearts. So the key verse here is verse 41, where it says, Isaiah said these things when he saw his glory. Whose glory? Christ's glory. <laughs> he saw the glory of Christ. <clears throat> that he is speaking that... that, that he is fulfilling, this prophecy is being fulfilled in Christ's ministry being rejected. And Isaiah looks ahead and sees this rejection, doesn't know the details of it. He writes of it. Um, he has in, and he does that as he's having a vision of the Lord, of Jesus Christ. We would call it the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in all of his glory. He's the very second person of the Godhead. Christ is very God. And so what do we see about Christ in this tremendous vision in Isaiah? We saw that Christ was on a throne. He has ultimate power. Uh, he, we call him omnipotent. He, he is a God of infinite strength. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, who, this is speaking of Christ, who being the brightness of his glory brightness of God's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is powerful. He is omnipotent. So he is a God. Uh, he is of infinite strength. Uh, the verses in Isaiah said he's high and lifted up. 
He is holy. He's glorious. And as uh, Isaiah's response, us similarly, we cannot, we're not divine and we're, we cannot fully appreciate just how glorious Christ is and, and, and just what all the details of, it, of that are. That's the finite trying to understand the infinite. He has power over every atom of the universe. His power is more powerful than all the atoms and atomic energy of the universe. We, in the, the story in the news last couple of weeks was they might have been able to have a net gain in energy and a fusion reaction that they did just a little tiny bit. So they think we might be able to maybe, maybe have clean energy in every single atom, every single atomic bit of energy God in Christ has more than because he speaks and creation occurs in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth Genesis 1 1 and we've learned or we learn in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 that the one who spoke those words was Jesus Christ hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the world's So God made the worlds through his son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can thwart his power. It is complete and ultimate. But it's more than just power. He had no beginning. Christ is eternal. I referenced this already. Um, John chapter 1 opens up, In the beginning was the word. So in the beginning was. How can you do that? (laughs) How can you have a past tense in the beginning? Because he is eternal. He transcends time. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was, word was, yeah, sorry, and the same was the beginning. Ah, Let me try that again. I'm going too fast. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So he is eternal. He's not bound by time. He created it. In fact, he has always been. He says in John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. There is no need for different tenses with Christ. He always was, he is, he always will be. Now, Isaiah also called him holy, right? He said that they, the, the seraphim were, were about him. They were, they were saying that he, they were pronouncing his holiness, holy, holy, holy. He is completely and utterly separate from sin. And we can't, we can't even imagine this. You try to think of some like ultimate power in this world. The strongest king in the world sins. The strongest king in the world was born. The strongest king in the world doesn't even know the thoughts in the mind of the queen. The strongest king is far, far less than our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we struggle considering, even imagining, how high Jesus Christ is as the second person of the Godhead. It's beyond our finite minds to grasp. So we get a picture. He's very, 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 very high, right? I can't put enough varies there. But let's consider then Christ's great lowliness. And for this, I'm going to go back to where we were In Philippians chapter 2 and verse uh, 5. This is page 1653. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. 
And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul describes the equality of Christ with God before he moves on to describe his condescension in the Incarnation. Again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So let's stop there. He thought it not robbery to be equal. For Christ to say he was equal with God would not be taking anything away from God. It wouldn't be stealing anything from him because he was God. He truly was God. There is no difference. As he said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. But in verses 7 and 8, we see what was necessary for Christ to become man but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the, the, the phrase there, but made himself of no reputation, literally following each Greek word literally, would say, but himself emptied. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, that does not mean that Jesus Christ gave up being divine when to become man. He was fully God and fully man in the incarnation. And there are details of that that we can't fully understand as well. But we do know that he set aside many of his divine attributes while he was here in this world. Uh, for one, he began to be uh, to recognize that he was a, a part of time, right? Something that he created. So he emptied himself. And think about that. The, this we're going. We're, we're aiming to see the the degree of the condescension. How far down? It says that he took upon him the form of a servant. The word servant is uh, literally just means a slave. A slave, doulos in the Greek. And you would think, well, wouldn't maybe not have made sense that if God was going to assume the form of man and take on flesh and come to this world, that he would come and to this world and set himself up as a king? I mean, he's the sovereign of the universe, right? Shouldn't he expect a little respect when he comes to this world as a man? He'd expect him to require men's service for his every daily need to be met and uh, uh, even though he had come to this world as a finite man, it still would have been a tremendous condescension. We still would have a hard time grasping, becoming, leaving finite God to become, or infinite God to be finite man. But he didn't do that. Jesus Christ came to be a slave to man. He was born in a manger to parents who were of no significant standing. In his earthly ministry, he wouldn't have anywhere to rest his head. But what did he do? He, he served. He healed. He taught. He would cast out demon, demons. He'd raise the dead. He comforted. He loved. Bottom line, he served. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, That's what we might expect, that people would want to minister to him when he came to this world. But instead, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So he emptied himself. He became a slave. And it also says in here, he was made in the likeness of men. He became one of us. Luke chapter 2 is where we see that, that, that account. You don't need to go there. I'll just read when it hit his birth. And so it was in verse 6. While they were there, the days were accomplished that she, Mary, should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus Christ had a body. He would become hungry and thirsty. (laughs) He spoke water into existence and then needed water. He needed it to survive. He could suffer pain and anguish. He would shed tears. The Bible says that Jesus Christ had to gain wisdom. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He increased, which means he had been less in his uh, humanity and had to increase in his wisdom. He was humiliated, subjected to death, Philippians 2.8 here, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. And while the circumstances, and we've talked about this in our study in Ephesians, and the circumstances of his death were perfectly planned by God from before the foundation of the world, according to scripture, Christ had to remain obedient to this call in his life. He didn't face a dignified death. He died in a humiliating fashion on a cross. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was spat on and scorned. As we've talked some in the last couple of weeks in our Bible reading at home here, the family, he was also forsaken by his father. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, at Christ's death, it says, Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. That's the ultimate bottom of condescension for Christ. He faced the wrath and withdrawal of favor of his father as he received the penalty due to those he came to save. He was forsaken by God. There is no parallel in this world A king dying for the lowliest subject in his kingdom is infinitely smaller condescension than when Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. He died the eternal death that was due to countless sinners in ages past, present, and future. He went from the infinitely high to the infinitely low. He became nothing. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then what we've studied in Ephesians, the motive for this, motivation for God for this. But God, Ephesians 2.4, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. The infinite act of condescension here was an act of God's great love, great love for us. When we consider Christmas Day, the birth of Christ, it is the first step in the ultimate plan of God's love. So let's uh, recall our goals for today. The first goal was to, is to gain the fresh look into the condescension of God in the Incarnation. Focusing on the degree of that condescension that was involved by Christ becoming man and dying on the cross. And we should carefully consider and even meditate upon that condescension. We can't understand it all, but I think, and we'll get to it at the end as to why we might want to do that. But it's good to meditate on and think on. But second, I want to step into the shoes of man. And there's an eternally important question we must ask ourselves, and that is how willing are we to condescend? And for that, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10, which is page 1412 in the Pew Bible. 1412, Mark chapter 10. And verse uh, 17. You might know of this account. It would be called the account of the rich young ruler. Um, or my Bible here calls it the rich young man. <laughs> but we know from Luke's gospel, he was a ruler. Uh, I'm going to read verses 17 through 22, and we can talk about it. And when he was gone forth into the way, this is Jesus, uh, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way and sell whatever whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come Take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. So in this section of Mark's gospel, we're told the account of of the rich young ruler. And it appears, and I have no reason to think not, that he had a sincere desire to find the Lord. He desires eternal life. What, may, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He knows the law, right? He knows the different aspects of the law. He's, he's trying to keep them. And perhaps he overstates his ability to keep them. But it appears to me that he's genuine in his desire. But in verse 21, Jesus Christ asks him a question. Or essentially a, a request of him. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, 
and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. He gives him the ingredient, the last ingredient that he needs. So what essentially is he asking the rich young ruler to do? (laughs) He's asking him to condescend to, from our definition, descend from the privileges of superior rank or dignity to do some act in an inferior, uh, which strict justice or the ordinary rules of civility do not require. And you just, it's hard to just think about who's this conversation. So do you see who is speaking to the rich young ruler? The ruler of the universe is speaking to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is talking to God in his infinite condescension. And Christ asks him to condescend just a little bit. Just just condescend a little bit. Give up your earthly possessions and follow me. I've given up heaven and glory and the throne and the seraphim. I've given up eternity, everything to come into this world for you. I want you to give up your stuff. And he doesn't even say there's nothing that he's going to get out of it, right? He promises him treasure in heaven. And that change of focus points us again to Christ's condescension. Because when we think about Christ coming to this world, he didn't humble himself and become obedient to the death on the cross simply as a matter of duty. There's a particular reason he did it for. And we'll look at Hebrews chapter 12 for that. Hebrews 12, which is page 1695, and then I think we'll come back here to the rich young ruler. Hebrews 12, 1695 is the page. There we go. Hebrews 12 and just the opening two verses. I think we've read these actually recently. Uh, But wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about With so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So we're being exhorted here to to run our race, but let's turn the focus to Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Christ endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. The joy of returning in glory to his Father. But even more than this, the joy of seeing his people glorifying God through having their fullest joy in their treasure in heaven. He is coming for a purpose, and that is to redeem a people. And those people, the result of their redemption, isn't going to be that they all just are going to have wonderful lives in eternity and just be happy in themselves, is that they're going to bring glory to God, that they're going to glorify him. That was their ultimate design to begin with. We learn in Isaiah that we are created for the glory of God, and they will be doing it perfectly. We will be doing it perfectly if we know him in heaven. First and foremost on our list, when we, the, 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 he desires for us is the treasure of Jesus Christ. When we place Christ as the supreme treasure in our lives, valuing him above everything, we bring glory to God and fulfill the joy that Christ had set before him 
when he went and he looked forward to the cross. So when he's looking forward to the cross, he is seeing a redeemed people turning their, their heart's desire on treasures on this world and setting their heart's desire on him and making him their treasure. So thinking back to the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, it, it appears at least that the ruler did not take Christ up on his offer, at least not immediately. You don't need to turn back there, but it says at the end of the account in verse 22, and he, the rich young ruler, was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. <laughs> he had great possessions. Jesus Christ had infinite possessions that he gave up for him. But he had a lot of stuff. And right here is where we find the most important decision of our lives. Because each one of us, especially in this affluent country, every one of us is the rich young ruler. We're blessed with abundant provisions. Maybe we have a desire to inherit eternal life to avoid eternal punishment in hell and reap the rewards of heaven. And Christ has a simple question for us, for you. Will you condescend? Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And what does that ultimately mean? That means we're not the Lord of our own lives. Jesus asked the rich young ruler to give up his earthly possessions, give to the poor, take up a cross, and follow. He asked him to condescend and to obey. Didn't sound fun. He had great possessions, it said. He had status. He was proud. He had earned it. This is mine. That breath doesn't impress God. The path that impresses God is one that relinquishes all of these things and treasures his son above all things to say, you know what? This stuff is meaningless compared to the one who infinitely condescended to me. Um, actually, let's go back to Mark. Um, I want to, I forgot, I do want to go back there for a minute. Um, that is page 1412 um, to uh, Mark chapter 10, page 1412. Because I want to get the disciples' reaction here. Verse 23, Mark chapter, what did I do? Mark chapter 10, sorry. Is it? Well, I messed up here. There, yes. Mark chapter 10 and verse 23. Yes, yes, yes. This is a new page. That's why I was wondering where I was. Okay. And Jesus looked round about this after this encounter and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. (laughs) 
I love that phrase. They were astonished out of measure. It blew them away, might be a modern way of saying that. How can anyone be saved? And this is the most glorious truth of all. When we say that we would desire to inherit eternal life, there might be a lot in our hearts that isn't on board with the idea of condescension. It goes against our nature. Christ says it's hard. We might naturally respond just like the rich young ruler. Some people, and a lot of people do this day, many people would decide to hold on to some semblance of Jesus Christ, but not let go of their earthly possessions, holding on to them for safety. Some may uh, continue to try and keep some of the Bible's teachings and believe that their works will be of value to God God the Father. Some are going to upend the teaching completely and say if they follow Christ, he's going to give them more stuff. The health, wealth, and prosperity preacher would say that. Your earthly possessions are going to increase along with your own bodily health. But Christ asks for something different. And I'm calling it a hopeful condescension. And do you know how you can do it today? (laughs) You can't. In fact, with man, this is impossible. But Mark 10.27, we see that with God, all things are possible. Even hard things. Even things that are impossible with man. Your condescension involves confessing to God that, one, you need saving, and two, you can't save yourself. You ask him to give you a heart that will treasure his son and his glory above everything, with heavenly treasure becoming infinitely more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And when you do that, he will receive you with open arms. Now, Jesus Christ today is no longer in a lowly position. I'll read the last couple of verses that we read in Philippians chapter 2 today, verses 9 through 11. This is on page 1653. I guess we're back to where we started. This will be our last uh, switch out here. Philippians 2, 9, page 1653. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, that is Jesus Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ is victorious over sin and death and hell, and he is seated again, Uh, Hebrews 12, 2, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We read that earlier. He is infinitely, infinitely beautiful, holy, strong, wise, good, righteous, true. He's praiseworthy, worship worthy, song worthy. He is the treasure we look forward to. That is our hopeful condescension. It looks ahead that we might know him more fully and experience more of his glory and his holiness, to be more like him, which will ultimately be fulfilled when we are glorified upon our death and his return if we are his children. And it says here, when he returns, 
verse 10, that every knee will bow to him as he is infinitely worthy of worship. And my hope and prayer this Christmas morning is that you will bow to him gratefully as your supreme treasure rather than fearfully as your supreme judge. So let's return to our aims as we have a final exhortation this morning. And I'm going to switch their order. I'm going to do the second one first. (laughs) Our second aim was to look at the eternally important question that faces mankind. Are we willing to condescend? Do we recognize that we cannot simply tack Jesus onto our lives to make our lives better, but that we must give up being our own God and let him rule our hearts? And it reminds me to, I guess the second point there is, do we examine our lives in, the, in, in, in reflecting on the, the, this, this account of the rich young ruler? And um, completely not related to me writing this sermon, I got a gift this morning from this guy. And he carved this for me. And it says, Remember the rich young ruler. And it's not like a, wow, I want to be like him someday kind of sign. It's a, it's a warning. It's a warning that a heart that remembers the rich young ruler and doesn't heed the warning of what happened in that account and places his treasure on earthly things will perish. And that might be one of the hardest things in this nation and our lives that we face is we just have stuff. Are we willing to condescend, take up a cross, and say, well, that's, can't somebody else do that? That sounds hard. I'll do that later. God wants our hearts today. Our first aim, again, this morning, was to take a fresh look at the condescension of God in the Incarnation. First, doesn't that make you just want to shout in thanksgiving to God? Humble gratitude should be the natural result of what we reviewed today. That, that to, see from, to try to get a little picture of the lofty heights and then see just how low he became. And in fact, we should be praying that God would even more fully reveal to us the extent of his condescension so that we may more fully appreciate his love, what his love looks like. I think the more you see the distance and, and what occurs in that, the more love you see from God. And so I think for us, we should pray also that that would develop in us more love for our Savior, more love for Jesus Christ. We have to condescend to receive him. But we do also have to treasure and value him most of all to receive him. And that's our prayer for each one of us today. Let's pray.